Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. I'm your host, Ahmed Hassan. Today, as always, we have a very interesting guest. With me is Dave Luke. Dave is a friend and a business partner of mine. I know Dave a little bit more than most of the guests that I have on, but Dave is an information and strategy advisor. He has worked in more than 50 countries, including managing emergency missions in Africa and Middle East. Yeah, it's funny hearing it uh, read out to you. I think the, the simple way of summarizing that is uh, yeah, a bit of an adventurous geek. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's, that, that's really a good explanation, from, at least from how I know you. If somebody asked me, explain Dave, I would, <laughs> and I would have to do it in one sentence. And I would say eternally inquisitive. <laughs> I think uh, first and foremost, uh, my family would agree with you and my girlfriend certainly would agree with you as well. <laughs> Sometimes you can ask why one too many times. <laughs> so as I said in the, in the beginning, we know each other a bit, a fair bit, but Dave, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah. Do you know, it's, I had a really interesting conversation just a couple of weeks ago and someone asked me. A slightly different version of that question of it is like, what do you identify with? I mean, I hadn't actually spoken to Sky for any more than like 10 minutes. I thought, good question. So I'll answer your question and I'll sort of maybe major on identity. So originally I, I was born and bred in Northern Ireland, which in itself, it gives you a bit of a potential identity crisis, but certainly makes you grow up and understand some of the trials and tribulations of culture and the world. So, yeah, I did do leave Northern Ireland quite early. So I left at age, age 16 and went through, dare I said, a pretty stereotypical British institution, boarding school, university, ended up working with the British government. So where that's come around to now, people ask me, like, who are you? Where are you from? I said, I now say I started in Ireland and I've managed to have the privilege of sort of meandering around the world. But not to be too politically contentious, but I, yeah, I definitely grew up British, but I've become an Irishman. And that isn't just because my British passport isn't worth the paper it's written on, compared to my fantastic Irish passport. It allowed me to travel the world and live in Europe unimpeded. I think it's actually just quite interesting about forming your identity, isn't it? So yeah, mm -hmm. I think to answer your question directly, I'm from Northern Ireland. But being from Northern Ireland means you're, in my mind, equally British and Irish. Hmm. Okay. I think I, I recognize a lot of parallels with myself mm. being born in Somalia yeah. and moving as a little kid to the Netherlands, growing up there, but then not lived there since 2011. Mm. Right, mm. So that's a, that's a bit ago, but yeah, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I think that. Pardon me for the people listening, the lame way to say it, we are citizens of the world, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So, okay, you, you started off in Ireland, you became mm. a Brit and you joined the military. So how yeah, did that, that come about? Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, this idea of being an adventurous geek, I, I always sort of was interested in the rest of the world and to keep it super simple as a kid. I, one of the things I enjoyed most was actually spinning my elder sister's globe and stopping it. 
with my finger and seeing if I knew that country or if I even knew that continent. And I would, and still to this day, absolutely fixated with maps and globes. So, you know, Ireland is an island. And if you speak to anyone who's lived in Ireland, you tend to go afar quite quickly. So, yeah, at that stage, you know, as a young man, I pursued my education through the military. I think I was always going to look to go into further education, university and the like and become some sort of sort of professional, whatever that means. And then it just seemed that there was a bit of an opportunity to do that slightly earlier, maybe than expected. So I went into the, the military system at age 16 and came out age 30 with a 10-year commission service as a Royal Engineer Officer, focusing actually quite a few different interesting things from driving around in mini tanks, building bridges and doing fun stuff like that to start with. Ended up becoming a paratrooper, an army specialist diver, and I finished in the EOD and search world, heavily focused on counter improvised explosive devices with a couple of tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Interesting, Dave. But okay, EOD. That's that's an that's an area, and 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 IED search. Yeah, that's an area. Obviously, you went further in. You you started RTS Global. How did that come about? Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually I'll take a step back if I can, Ahmed. Mm -hmm. I when I was in Afghanistan, I ended up. I sort of working slightly outside of the engineering field and into what was, you know, a vogue term at the time called stabilization, mm -hmm. which was a promoting either consent winning or a rehabilitation and development activities with a military intent, but for what looked like development. And my, my job was actually to try and integrate and understand how the military operations in Afghanistan were either positively or affecting uh, the the civilian population, as I would have called it then. Now I've sort of grown up and I call it uh, the normal people. <laughs> but mm. yeah, at that stage, I sort of got a bit of a, a taste for humanitarianism, stabilization. And, you know, just to be quite simple, stabilization is the sort of provision of security and humanitarian effect at the same time. So it tends to be a providing sort of governance as well as some of the hard aid and maybe less hard security functions. So anyway, that whet my appetite. And the point there is it's, to, it's, it's relief. It's not for me, it wasn't about guns, trucks and, you know, aggression in the military. I thought it was, you know, as an engineer and as an engineering officer, it was all about supporting people to live, move, fight. Uh, but and my, my real focus then was all about being able to understand how we could reduce risk of explosive hazards, how we could promote even prosperity within Helmand province in Afghanistan at that time. So not long after Afghanistan, sort of came back and actually specialized more and more into this world of a explosive ordnance mitigation is another way of term describing it. And interesting though, I quite quickly left the military after that because I decided stabilization, humanitarianism was what I wanted to do. And it wasn't sort of being in the military anymore. And I think someone once said to me, what's the best decision you made in your life? And I said, leaving the military uh, to become <laughs> myself. 
But mm. interesting, the second best decision I ever made was joining it. Mm. So I don't begrudge it. And I'm proud of the person or the, the parts of me it has promoted. But I'm definitely as proud of the decade past it. But just to you know, stick on your line of questioning, I left that and actually went into slightly more emergency relief focus and ended mm -hmm. up going straight into the Ebola response in West Africa. And at that stage, ran an emergency program for a public health agency where we actually framed and established a, one of the community level response programs for uh, OFDA, which is the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance for USAID, so the, the US Overseas Aid Program. And at that stage, you know, people ask me, like, Dave, what do you know about public health? Well, not much, but luckily I had a fantastic team of specialists and those specialists were doctors, entomologists, epidemiologists, absolutely you know, top of their game. And what I, my role in that was to be a, you know, a manager and a leader. I had to be able to corral their specialities and to run a program. The point of that is it was a very much technical intervention within an aid a context. Uh, so I did that for a few years, actually. I ended up rather than being the global ops director for a humanitarian relief organization and just saw more and more again of there's a few things which I think have real impact within humanitarian affairs. One is public health and the other is mine action. And mine action is the humanitarian terminology for dealing with explosive hazards in post-conflict scenarios. So in a, in a, a weird set of circumstances, I, uh, you know, I was, I was really, really enjoying uh, being a pure blood humanitarian and, you know, and purposely had stayed away from some of the more stereotypical sidesteps that normal officer would do in the, I don't know, management consulting, banking, security analysis, all that types of stuff. So I, I purposely stayed away from that and uh, actually went right the other way and became a yoga instructor while I was being a humanitarian response manager. But as I say, you know, the moon's aligned and a very good friend back from Northern Ireland, he was out in Syria responding in my action. And we were at that situation where like, what, should we start our own organization? And the aim was to make sure that we were just trying to support people to do their jobs as well as possible. We were both working for much larger organizations, and this is no slur on those organizations, but they, they seemed unfortunately burdened by having to maintain a certain volume of work so that they could sustain their businesses. And, you know, myself and Mike, the other director at Arteos, you know, we decided, do you know what we need, we want to do? We want to start a sort of a technical assistance and advisory consultancy that could provide research, evaluation, and real niche technical assistance to concentrate on the more difficult, dare I say it, and more complex tasks and be looking to the future. Little did I know Ebola would be, uh, you know, the first, not the first public health issue we would deal with if we think about the epidemic. But, you know, I, I then decided to start the business, RTOs, with Mike. Uh, and over the last few years, we have really concentrated on sort of the, the forward edge of mine action, understanding how urban environments, complex environments, and then improvised explosive devices 
as they have become the prolific weapon, a post-conflict rather than slightly more legacy traditional mind systems. So yeah, I mean that was a, a, a meandering explanation, but point is we you know we started Arceus because we realised there was a few significant capability gaps within mine action. Our heart and souls saw that mine action you know had real tangible effect to be able to release land and promote prosperity, and ultimately back in twenty fifteen sixteen. There was, you know, two or three conflicts in the world that were significant. Iraq, Syria, ISIS came, became a, you know, arguably an existential threat to the world. So we focused on the hardest situation we possibly could and started business to try and do what we could. That's super interesting. I mean, we talked very often and I've never heard the origin story of Arteos Global. So that's, so thank you for sharing that. So. We know each other mainly from research and mm. intelligence and how did, I'm not saying it's a pivot, but how did that became a, a pretty solid pillar of Arceus yeah. Global? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. I think if I can, again, just take it one step back, a, I absolutely love information. Like, absolutely mm. love it. And I love people. So that's therefore relationships. So then my primary academic background was in communication, information, systems management, which is a mouthful, but that's like data bits. Technically, how does information move around within a telecommunications? But it's also then how people want to communicate an idea. So I have had that as a thread of how I think and act all the way along and ultimately all situations, whether they be, you know, in the old days, understanding a situation, military intelligence, intelligence preparation of the environment, all of that, which I had a good focus and a good schooling on, matched with this information and information science technicality that I had academically. Point of all of this rests on if you do not understand the context of a situation, you can't assess it. So, and if you make it even a little bit more geeky, there's problem definition or there's the problem space in any scenario and there's a solution space. Mm -hmm. If you do not define a problem, state it and structure it effectively, you have no hope of identifying possible solutions which you can grade and then potentially test before you then sell or scale that solution to the problem. So research for me, could be called intelligence. It could be called information gathering, but ultimately research in itself, the generating new knowledge, understanding and defining problems such that you can then start to attempt to apply the right solutions. So it, because for me, it's a natural and critical element of the business that we understand how we work, how our customers, beneficiaries, affected populations, whatever terminology you want to use, what they need. So research could also be termed a needs assessment, a context assessment, or a technical assessment. So I, I, another example of that, if I may, is 
you know, over the last couple of years, we actually started to provide a unexploded ordinance risk assessment, but not overseas, specifically for the construction sector in the UK. So it is a desktop research product, which we then provide as an assessment prior to construction. So if knowing, understanding, context assessment, I think is uh, interwoven through all activities. Very true. All right. So that's what you're doing right now. Or one of the things, one of the many things that you're doing right now, how do you see the future for, for RTS Global? What's something you would like to do? What do you think you're going to do? What are you focusing on in the immediate future and, and more like longer term? Yeah. So just, let me just pick up, sorry, where I left off. So, I mean, to be quite clear, the organization, so as you said, as you know, it's split into a few different pillars where we have a, you know, we've been in a fantastically privileged position to have a few on our team who are genuinely global specialists within different parts of explosive ordnance mitigation, and they provide very niche advisory and capacity development programs to governments, to international institutions, to other larger NGOs, other larger commercial organizations. So, you know, dare I said, once again, we're the, we're the geeks in the room, but who are quite adventurous. So we, we get our hands dirty. Mm. We get, you know, sand between our toes all the time, but we bring very specialist, specialist uh, ex experience and capabilities. And we focused on complex environments urban environments and IEDs. So we actually have been part of a, a group, a core group within my election who have been framing and establishing how to actually conduct improvised explosive device, either disposal or management, depending on the terminology you want to use. So we have effectively prove concept at the policy level. We've helped generate good practice guides for the practice level. And now what we want to do is support other organizations in scaling this capability across the whole of the sector. So it's, you know, it's actually, you know, you could look at it across a, an innovation or even a product development scaling strategy, hit the policy, hit the product development and then iterate, iterate until you have a series of different training programs, policy documents, you actually push it out into the sector and get some real work done. An example of that, actually, we have been working in Afghanistan for the last few years, pre and post the Taliban, a situation and there we have, you know, we helped one of the key organizations, the Halo Trust help them understand the effects of improvised explosive devices and then help them frame and conceptually frame how to support the Afghan organizations in dealing with this real threat to life. So I spent the last three years on and off now, either in Afghanistan or remotely teaching Afghan organizations and people how to deal with improvised explosive devices initially, teaching them, training them, and then going out and mentoring them on site so that they have a reliable and sustainable capability to actually the capacity to deal with it themselves.
So doing that in other theatres is exactly what we want to do. And concurrent to that is to really uh, grow some of the, the, the research focuses that we have both in mind action and wider and say one of those which is really going quite well is the unexploded ordinance uxo the risk assessments for that for the construction industry and again the you know the consistent theme or the, the golden thread throughout this is us being able to really understand listen research situations give technical and reliable advice to either organizations to deal with it themselves or to inform a program design and then us either deliver some capacity development and mentoring ourselves or to give recommendations for other larger organizations to take that on. Super interesting. I think I'm just finding the words how to describe this, but Every person that I've spoke to in the podcast, but also people that, you know, friends and, and people that I work with and people that I respect for what they do and how they do it, I think pretty much all of them have this talent that might not always be described as I'm, as I'm about to do is I think something, and I think you are really, really good at it is you know how to tell a story. <laughs> and I think it's woven into pretty much everything you do. And I think, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be facetious about this, but I think it's very important that, that you can, that you can make concepts simple and get at the heart of problems. And, and the reason why I'm going on onto this is that we can come, we can circle back, but you're also very involved in documentary filmmaking with your other company, Black Bay Media. So am I barking up the wrong tree here about the storytelling part? Or is there something that uh, that goes as a red thread through your life? Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. And I sort of, I pride myself on communication. I think my, my friends, loved ones and colleagues will maybe disagree about simplifying situations and in fact a lot of the time i confuse everybody with all the different directions <laughs> and questions and i will pride myself on not being linear in process or thought but if you stick with it it becomes a story and i think you're right there so you know hey, when people say hey what do you do or describe yourself i say you know i focus on strategy information and communication and ultimately if you cannot communicate what you're thinking or if you cannot communicate with people to understand and to really interrogate in the nice sense not the cia sense what they are trying to say and that for me is a skill. So information comes from telling a story, but also listening. And the key here is anyone who can tell a good story or maintain a good conversation, it isn't just about projecting, it's about listening. And I think that's the key is I've had a, you know, just people talked about it, sort of a, a mosaic of a professional profile over the last 20 years. But the consistent theme has been obsession with information, obsession with people, 
and asking why. And the core to all of this, the red thread should be a green thread. An Irishman mm. can tell a bloody story. So I have an, I have <laughs> an unfair advantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I say this also because you said something about everybody in the beginning getting confused. Yeah. And I think also because it's most, the way most people think is very linear. Yeah. Right. And I think you are very nonlinear. Yeah. And sometimes you start talking about something and I, I, I know what you're like getting after. Right. So, yeah. so I was like, let him go, let him go because I know where he's going with this, but you know that, and this is not to blow smoke, but you know, the scene in the second Batman movie, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies where where they introduced the Joker. <laughs> right. So the first, so, all right. So in the first scene of the movie, they introduce a Joker and he does a very chaotic bank heist. And that's the begin. That's even before the credits. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think in any good storytelling, you set the tone immediately where mm -hmm. most people go into backgrounds and history and right. And that's something you do. You go mm -hmm. into the heart of the problem and sometimes people are like, yeah, but that's not where it started or, or that's not, yeah. you know, that's not how it's done. And I think mm -hmm. that's so important in not just storytelling, but in problem solving. Right. So, so that in that regard, you know, I'm, I'm saying you're, you're a, a version of Christopher Nolan. That's, that's what I'm, yeah. I'm getting. Yeah. So I read that or heard that as I am the Joker. I'll take that. I, so no, it's funny you say that because I think it's really important and I will have to say I struggle sometimes uh, to be succinct. I struggle to uh, just be even empathetic with other people in groups because I'm like, right, I think this is what we need to talk about. And I have really tried, uh, again, to just get that point of actively listening because I, I do... You know, it sounds a little bit arrogant, but I, I do think quickly. And I used to assume thinking quickly was good, but it's not mm -hmm. because it's actually lazy thinking because you're probably basing on heuristics and my brain's doing loads of shortcuts to what it wants to do. There's probably a load of ego on my shoulder about me wanting to project whatever it is. So I think to your, to your point there, it's taken a long time. And I get it wrong all the time to be able to not interrupt, to listen to people and actually not just listen, but appreciate what they're saying. And I was a, on a mountain bike ride just yesterday, listening to a, a podcast about how to have good conversations. And the, one of the key takeaways from it is some form of, forgive the inaccuracy, Chinese proverb about how you listen with your ears. You listen with your eyes, you listen with your heart, and you listen with your soul. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sure some a behavioral scientist could deconstruct that and tell us what that actually <laughs> means in scientific terms. But I thought it was, it was fantastic, wasn't it? So it's about empathy, mm -hmm. sympathy, nonverbal behavior, and actually listening. And, uh, you know, just to focus on the, the point you were making there, it 
very easy to project. It's very easy mm. to come up with an idea, especially if you've worked in certain fields at certain times. And there I said, a lot of the work that we do, either together or in different fields, it's, it's driven by timelines. It's driven usually by relatively limited resources. So you have to be quite results focused. Mm-hmm. And there's a real caution I would give that jumping to solutions. I, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but I effing hate when people come up with a solution before we've actually defined the problem and yes. structured where we're and how we're going to make a decision on it. Cause if not, you're throwing mud at a wall and you know, if I want to make it slightly more theoretical too often, I, I happen upon people who are supplying what they want to say, supplying mm-hmm. their solution. When what we need to do is to react to demands. And, you know, you've got to have a demand needs driven product or service to be a successful business at a slightly more macro level within humanitarian affairs. We are as a fraternity trying to drive a localization agenda where it's actually the affected populations are demanding in the economics sense, what they need, not being told by outsiders. Yeah. So it's a balance of wants and needs, Mm -hmm. but the critical element here is demand driven services based on Uh, research assessment and understanding. Yeah. Really well said. I think I've, I know I just mentioned it before, but where did, I know you're working on different projects, but where did the documentary filmmaking come from? How did, what is the, how did black main media get born and, and what's the, what's the genesis of that? Yeah. So again, go back to this adventurous geek. I, you know, I seem absolutely obsessed with people, obsessed with other cultures, but will happily admit to been been given quite a few opportunities as I've grown up by my parents, by the, the system in inverted commas. But there I said, I took it, took them and ran with them hard. So I've traveled all of my life. And then that manifested actually in traveling with purpose. And that purpose was usually on expeditions to climb mountains. And, you know, I'm sat here tonight in a Chamonix in France at the foot of Mont Blanc. And that's because, you know, mountains energize me. So, you know, having an overseas perspective, having a attempt to be as culturally aware as possible has meant that all I've ever wanted to do was travel abroad. So at Black Main, our focus is overseas travel exploration documentaries where it came from was a sort of back to one of my my biggest prides in life is having you know a few friends who i really trust and they really really trust me and that's back to the point of having a passion or obsession for people and that's about relationships trust for me it's absolutely essential i mean it's amusing actually i, I heard a anecdote about a year ago now, where there's a German saying that uh, trust is okay, but control is better. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's the exact description, but it's something along those lines. But for, for, but for me as a person, I've actually gone the other way over the last decade where I openly trust people and are super inclusive. Mm. And that's promoted the communication element that you've talked about. And ultimately it's promoted respect for others. 
So with that as a, you know, as a, an ethos, it's maybe a way of describing it. I've always wanted to travel, see stories and tell stories. But again, another opportunity came along where a very good friend of mine, Annie, called Lev Wood, who's now become sort of, you know, a, a UK famous explorer, fantastic author, and has fronted quite a few award-nominated documentaries, both in the UK and abroad. We were good. We've been good friends since 2005. You know, maybe a bit of a, maybe sounds like a bit of a stereotype, we're both paratroopers together. And then sort of a reunited as he left the military and went into media. I was going to do emergency response at the time, but he gave me a phone call and he was like, you know what, we're doing some really good stuff and I could do with some sort of trusted people around. Come, come and give me a hand. And I was like, sorry, mate, I'm saving lives. This is absolutely fantastic. I found my colleague and he's like, look, I mean, this is getting bigger. He'd just done a, you know, a world first of walking the length of the entire of the river Nile. And this had literally propelled him to, you know, exploration stardom with, you know, from Michael Palin to, a, you know, Bear Grylls and all of these different comparisons. And a funny story here. I remember coming back from leaving an expedition, I, back onto the Strand in London and walking into a shop and staying a cardboard cutout of left. Like, I texted him, I was like, dude. What is happening? Why did I see a life-size version of you in the middle of a shop? He's like, yeah, the TV is going really well. And again, it's a few months after that when I was back in London at LSC, <laughs> just off the back of the Ebola response. It gave us a chance to reconnect because he was back from Africa. I was back from Africa. I was at that stage starting up Archos. And he's like, come on, come and give us a hand with one of these TV bits and you can be the location manager. I'm like, what the F is the location manager? He's like, just come and be. He's like, just come and get shit done. Like you normally do. You never feel the follow through. You always get stuff done. I was like, okay, cool. So the next thing you know, fast forward three months, I'm swinging a hammock in the deepest depths of <laughs> Panama in the jungle, in the Darien Gap. And we're trying to cross the Darien Gap, which is arguably one of the most challenging jungle environments in the world. And this is going to be, you know, a world first on TV. And I'm half, you know, I should say more than half. Obviously, obviously focused on looking after the team, managing the expedition, looking after the uh, TV crew, but also writing my bloody dissertation in the hammock at night <laughs> because I still was in the middle of my masters and it was like yeah. one of these situations that Led's got me into over the last two decades of come and just give us a hand with this and then it snowballs <laughs> but at that time we were working with different organizations and we did two or three really good shows but a sad actually in back end of 2016 early 2017 we were both in Washington DC at a, a a kind of movie uh, conference called Real Screen. And we were at the National Geographic office uh, drinking champagne and eating oysters. And we looked at each other and like, like, you know what, why don't we just, again, the same genesis as me and Mike, why don't we do this ourselves? Why, why don't we do it as well as possible? And why don't we make an attempt, you know, it sounds cliche to like, 
you know, nudge the needle or, you know, push forward a sector. But both artists and both black men have the same drive, not just do stuff which is good enough or run of the mill, which is world first, which is genuinely impactful, which is actually supporting people, educating people or exposing them to issues. And, you know, the TV side, there's an engagement element to it, there's an education and there's an entertainment side of it. But ultimately, you know, you're making people smile, which is really interesting mm. and, and satisfying. So, yeah, we, off the back of that, we're like, right, let's start a TV production company. It's a bit like arriving in a, a Ebola in West Africa as all the other NGOs are flying out. How hard can it be? Well, like, like <laughs> Ebola, like, I, can, I can tell you now, starting up or scaling an organization in a humanitarian disaster. Uh, it's not far off trying to run two small companies here in the UK. But yeah, 2017, we decided to start the company yourself. And at that stage, I did a little bit more work for other production companies, different channels, and then decided to basically weave together three or four of the most iconic expeditions of all time. And we circumnavigated the Arabian Peninsula over 14 countries, six and a half, Sorry, a fourteen and a half thousand miles, six and a half months, and we made a documentary called Arabia with Levison Wood, which, as I say, consisted of us uh, hitchhiking out of Syria, rolling into battle on a tank with ISIS, crossing the empty quarter desert, getting thrown out of Yemen, hitching a ride across the Gulf of Aden to Somalia, to be very quickly escorted out of the country and over to Somaliland to then be rescued by a very good friend who took us in for a couple of days. Next thing you know, we're in Djibouti. And then back we go across to Saudi Arabia, into Jordan, Jordan, up into Lebanon, and back to Syria through Palmyra. So we did a full circumnavigation of the entire of the peninsula, filmed it. And, you know, it's, it's stuff, it's a challenge, it's risk, it's complexity which other people just weren't willing to take on but like most things if you if you are if you know if you apply grit a good bit of you know whether intelligence or process you can probably achieve stuff but you've got to back yourself you've absolutely got mm. to back yourself and don't get me wrong there's been many a night we've been rolling our eyes thinking jesus christ what are we doing here this time Anyway, there you go. We did that. And, you know, lo and behold, Arabia was nominated as uh, the best documentary in the UK in 2020. Unfortunately, we didn't win. But since that, you know, a bit of a bit of a lull period during COVID because, you know, we wouldn't want to be doing too much overseas uh, filming if it wasn't in a responsible manner and the different restrictions of the COVID. But yeah, there you go. That's how, that's how it happened. Once again, a friend asking for help and deciding that we could, I mean, not do it a bit better, but, you know, making, making sure we could tell, tell good stories, access the unaccessible stories, and just expose the absolute beauty of human beings and the environment as much as possible. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, I remember when you told me about it, you did that. And this was after, you know, we talked about the stabilization and security yeah. and all that stuff that we're working on. 
and I saw the documentary and I watched all the episodes. And I was like, the story and the journey is already crazy enough. But how did you guys make it look so good at the same time too? Because it looks <laughs> yeah. so slick. Yeah. Well, I mean, down to that, a, um, we've got a fantastic team of you know, some, some of the best producers, directors, series producers in the UK. And I say team of, we have good friends. You know, you go through these things and, a, you know, it is a small, tight team of trusted individuals that where we've grown over the last five to seven years and everyone's really good at what they do. So back to the question you asked a few minutes ago, they are, and this is something I'm brutally jealous of. I can tell a story by understanding the situation and, and writing a narrative. Mm. I can verbalize a narrative, but their gift is that comprehension and then communication mm. via either photography or video. And, mm. you know, what you were alluding to if I, what I thought you were leading to was like how this like, sort of the mosaic pieces together. It's about, it's still about engaging with humans as a human, listening, documenting that situation as accurately as possible, and then maintaining a narrative and communicating it to the correct individual in the correct manner. That's creativity, right? You know, the world has this creativity, but it's also process and professionality. Mm. So the creativity side, absolutely. Like the magic I've seen the team, a Neil is our creative director. And I see the story. I hear what the people are saying. So I try to support him to be like that. That's the genesis of what's trying to be said, but his gift to be able to capture that and to blend together the different picture and image elements. And then, as you say, make it look cinematic when he's literally sweating mm. from every corner of his body being shot at or whatever it is, ridiculous <laughs> thing that we've got ourselves involved in. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a gift. It's like, you know, we, you know, you and I do a lot of research together which is great. And the key, speaking to people is fun. Speaking to people a, for a, a, an output of being able to have a structured conversations to deliver a, a consolidated information or body of evidence is a skill set. Communicating that mm. either in written form or in visual form, that's the gift. And that is where the creativity mm. comes in be able to understand an audience yeah. uh, and to be able to really, really have the empathy where you have people engaged throughout. And there's a, one thing I've learned over the last uh, three or four months, actually, there's a real humbleness to how to tell a story and it's not to tell it as technically as you can in written form as, you know, with the wildest vocabulary. You know, it's not a competition to show how well read you are. It's about saying it as simply as possible, but doing it justice. You know, if there's a level of technicality, keep it there. But what you don't want to do is this actually distract people by putting in your 
whatever the buzzword of the day is at the worst case, or, mm -hmm. you know, best case using a overly technical terminology. But actually, you know, the emphasis here started with the, the movie side of things. There's so many techniques you can do. The gift is keeping the viewer locked into the story, keeping them engaged. If you want, if you take them out of the story, you need to transition them elsewhere straight away. So how you write a narrative and actually how you collect or film the movie is, you know, very, very similar. You need to keep people engaged throughout. And it's exceptionally challenging to do so. Special effects distract people. Moving cameras, drone shots, all of this, you can piece it all together. But to have it as one clean narrative with a start, middle, and end, you know, a research paper has a start, middle, and end. Churchill said, mm. said, tell them what you want to say, said, and said again. Same TV, start, mm. middle, end. And it's a real gift. And I, sometimes I, I wonder if I, I even have it for writing is to keep people engaged. If I'm a 21 year old, 22 year old, and I just finished school or I'm about to finish school and I want to go into the wide world, even younger than that, what piece of advice would you give if somebody wants to come into this, I don't know if I can say industry, but into this world of research and storytelling? That's yeah. it. Let's call it that. Well, I think the simplest thing is maybe to break those down. So first and foremost, ask for help. Like no ifs, no buts. Find someone close to you that might know someone else and just use the network effect. Yeah. Really? Don't be shy. What? Just ask yourself that question. What's the worst that could happen? You know, it's a bit of a Timothy, Timothy Ferris-ism. He says it all the time, but what is the worst that can happen? Mm. Ask for help, ask questions, and that then leads to put yourself out there. So look, you know, look for opportunities and don't be afraid, as I said, of asking or looking for an opportunity. But the key is recommendations. And I think that's how I've been on a, on a personal level, been really lucky over the years to have call them mentors, guardian angels, whatever cliche we want to go. People are like, Jesus, do you know what, Dave? I might just back you in this one. So therefore, it's about developing. People talk about networking. It's about developing, for me, mm. emotional intelligence to match vocational skill or academic qualification. Yes. So, you mm. know, it's about, I think, the key there is like developing a network, connections, contextual understanding, as well as a skill set. So if you, and I'll focus on mine action to start with, if you want to be a technical operator where you're dealing with the devices, there's some very structured training programs or qualifications through the International Mine Action System Standards, sorry. So there's a system of the International Mine Action Standards where you will get, you know, literally skill and technique training, how to deal with explosive devices. And that's a very good tangible entry point if you want to look at the slightly more research evaluation you know looking at accountability to affect populations and that community engagement element well then again there are not not barriers to entry but there's an assumption you will have a 
certainly as a call an expat on a program, you would be a university graduate in a, an appropriate field, and that appropriate field could be anything from you know social sciences through to project management or the like. So while that's not a, a, a direct, it's like really, really simply get out there, get experience and do that by milking your network. And if you don't have a network, Google a company that you, you know, Google it, look for a few companies in your uh, locality and you know what? Email the CEO. Don't mess about with anyone else. Email the CEO, phone the CEO, tell them your story. Don't presume anything. Just be like, I am, I don't know, I am Ahmed. I've just finished at high school. I've got a summer. I'd love to learn. I remember a few years ago, there was, I was listening to a podcast. It's a consistent theme here. I cycle around an awful lot and listen to an awful lot of podcasts. So these are, none of these are my ideas. I'm just, I'm just, you know, savagely recycling smarter people than my ideas, but hopefully put them in the right context. And I was, it was about the hiring policy of Google. And it was about potential and enthusiasm. So they stopped hiring for technicality. Yeah. Attitude is key. Yeah. Attitude is learned and attitude can grow. Skills are easy to acquire. It just takes time. Mm. Attitude. And it's, for me, it's about... Hey, I'm stating this now hey, from another book. A guy called Daniel Pink talks about uh, how you promote, communicate, and sell yourself. And he talks about attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. So before you communicate to the CEO of that organization, think, who is he? What do they do? And what might you be able to offer? Go there. Buoyant. Go to 10 of the organizations, realize you will get knocked back, but hey, that's how you learn. And then when you do have the conversation, be really clear, really clear of what you could offer or better what you want out of the situation. And that boils down to just be honest and don't be scared to just Mm -hmm. ask. Or you could go to university, listen to all the university lectures go to a load of trade shows, listen to all these other people. I don't know. I would say own your own destiny. No one owes you anything. Yeah. Love that. Love that. I think even for me, the people that I've hired, I always say this, I rather hire somebody who loves what we do and follows what we do than somebody who came from a top school and, and knows how to write proper on your point of enthusiasm. I wanted to comment on a couple of things you said, just a quick one. You said like uh, that you take these ideas and from other smart people, but I've always learned that ideas don't belong to anybody. Ideas are just there, right? And if you're just at the right wavelength, you will pick them up or you don't, but that's on the ideas point. And I wanted to comment on your networking and that's how we got to know each other. I always tell people, you know, grow your tribe. Your tribe, you start with your family and your friends that you grew up with. 
and grow your tribe. I mean, that's the, that's my mantra at least. But uh, Dave, thank you so much. I know, you know, me and you, we talk, well, when we talk, we talk a lot and uh, bizarre concepts and very esoteric conversations. But I always like to <laughs> close off with asking two questions. Sometimes it's three. The first one is, what are you reading right now? If you are reading something. Hey. Mm -hmm. So. All right, there we the go. What are you listening to? The... Not reading. So, yeah, audio books wise, there's uh, what's it? It's a podcast series, to be more accurate. And it's uh, called The Uphill Athlete. And it's considering conditioning and endurance programs for mountain-based sports. Uh, that's what I was on first thing this morning. And then later in the afternoon, uh, I was squared or podcast, which I do quite like. There is, maybe to actually, do you know what? I'll answer your question really directly. What am I reading right now? A... <laughs> Should be, what have I been trying to read nonstop for the last two or three years, but will never finish the bloody book, but I'm obsessed with it. There's a book called Flow, F-L-O-W, by, forgive the horrific pronunciation, Mikhail Kaczynski, I think, or something along those lines. And it just talks about... Uh, the pursuit of happiness and a uh, higher human performance. And that's, uh, I think it's a, a really interesting book. It takes you a few different reads of it at different times in your life. Two, two lessons uh, anything in one you're read. watching? Just for the fun of it, even, not even from. Uh, uh, yeah, do you know, uh, I'm not that much of a, a TV watcher. I'm trying to think, I've been doing quite a bit of travel over the summer for work, and uh, I'm trying to think of some movies that I enjoyed. <laughs> ah, I actually yeah. watched a movie which was called The House of Gucci, and it's all about the background Italian clothing stroke, a fashion brand. Uh, but there's a little bit of sort of dark twist humor involved in that, which is, that's definitely, and I, I watched, oh, this is actually quite good. Oh, look at this, I've got the name now, uh, Le the one with Leonardo DiCaprio in Craig New Gatsby. York in the sort of swinging 20s. Oh, uh, the fantastic Mr. Grey Gatsby, yeah. So I watched the Grey Gatsby as well, I thought. That was, a, yeah, another amusing one. And ah, another very interesting one I watched was actually called The Contractor, which all about a um, contractor who had just come out of the uh, U.S. Special Forces uh, with an injury, but had then taken steroids to overcome his injury, but had got a dishonorable discharge. And then it got seduced into the mercy of contract in Germany. So that was another one of those ones where you like thank yourself for making good decisions <laughs> to not go down those routes. Yeah. With Chris Pine is that one, right? Is it? Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was yeah. one of those ones. It was quite fun. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Dave. This, there's one thing, uh, it's not, a, it's not a piece of advice and not a question. It's just a comment on, on who Dave is for people listening. One of the most, like, I was like, that's Dave was, I, I remember you and I were, were supposed to talk and we were messaging each other and, and you were like, what are you up to? And I, and I said, right, I'm just, you know, doing some research. And I was like, what are you up to? And you were like, I'm doing yoga while watching Citizen Kane. Do you remember that? <laughs> I don't, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was like, that's a typical Dave sentence. So, but yeah, Dave, thank you so much for doing no worries, this. I yeah. know we, we try to do it. Yeah, it's been a, been a while. while. Yeah, that's it. We've been juggling all sorts, but yeah, cool. Yeah, give us a, give us a shout and looking forward to the uh, next conversation or the next bit of work together. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dave. Have a good one for everybody listening. Thank you guys for, for joining us. I know we missed last week. I've been traveling, so forgive me for that. And I hope to see you guys next week. And if you have any questions or whatever, you heard what Dave said, send the CEO a message or an email. So that's an open invitation right there, I think. <laughs> Let's see. Cheers, man. Have a good evening. All right. Thank you. Cheers.